0: It is by will alone I set my mind in motion. It is by the juice of saffu that thoughts acquire speed, the lips acquire stains, the stains become a warning. It is by will alone I set my mind in motion.
1: And welcome to The Invisible Ray, a podcast about movies we like, by people who like movies. I'm Andrew Isla.
0: I'm Jojo Seams.
1: And I'm L. Collins. And today we're here to talk about David Lynch's uh, 1984 adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. Yes.
0: Dune. Dune.
1: A hugely popular movie that everyone loves. Yes. And uh, <laughs> yeah, there's certainly, uh, there's an amount of. Opinions about it in the world. Um, to start off with, I feel like we should maybe say that, like, if there's any kind of background noise on this recording from the multiple fans we have <laughs> running in our house here, uh, it's because it's May in Tucson, and I refuse to record a podcast without any fans running in the room. That's just, it's not go- that's not going to happen. So just pretend it's. Uh... Yeah, I don't know.
0: Look if. If Dune teaches us anything, it's that you gotta do what you gotta do to survive in a desert environment.
1: Right, exactly. It's true. That's what I was getting to. So yeah, Dune. Um, This is a pretty interesting one for us to discuss. Um, JoJo and I especially are known for talking a lot on the internet about David Lynch, um, especially, you know, over the past year, last summer when New Twin Peaks was happening. Uh, But... We haven't talked very much about Dune just because by the nature of it, it's very much outside kind of the uh, the aesthetics and thematic parallels that all of his other work kind of has to to itself and to each other. It sort of stands alone in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. So you, it doesn't come up when you're discussing sort of his his general vibe. Although there are a certain amount of pieces of connective tissue that might be kind of surprising when you look at it through that lens. Yeah.
2: I mean obviously the the biggest thing that, that connects it to the rest of his work is uh Kyle
1: McLaughlin. Yeah, the the whole cast has is full of of people who would be Lynch regulars and in a lot of cases this was their first time, you know, other than Jack Nance who was, you know, the lead in Eraserhead and would be in almost all of Lynch's stuff until until Nance passed away and uh 97 uh there's a lot of other people who would go on to work in other pieces of his and this is where they met so it had a it definitely had a big impact on his career for better and for worse
2: yeah also i don't know if this is related to his eventual casting in twin peaks but i do think it's interesting that albert's dad is in this movie
1: yes and uh we were remarking when we you know rewatched it to prepare how much uh jose ferrer at the age he was here looks a lot like his son Miguel did, you know, in twin peaks at the end of his life. You know, he really aged, he really aged into his father much more than he, than he looked like when he was younger. (laughs) Yes. I was
2: going to comment on that too. It's very noticeable. They're, they're very similar as older men.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep.
2: Um, Of course, not long ago, I, uh, recorded an episode for uh for christmas of my other podcast into it uh with katie Schenkel, where we talked about white christmas which features jose's wife and miguel's mother rosemary clooney that's right um white christmas not a david lynch film but wouldn't it be interesting (laughs) if it was oh my goodness
1: (laughs) that's quite a that's quite a thing to imagine um so where this falls in in the David Lynch canon is, uh, you know, he had done two feature films. He had done Eraserhead, which was kind of instantly like a cult midnight movie hit that, you know, wasn't still not a lot of people had heard of it, but it was definitely popular in, you know, art and film circles.
0: Right. An incredibly esoteric, black and white low-budget experimental art film.
1: And was a hit in, you know, the film industry and and community. Like, Stanley Kubrick immediately called it one of his favorite movies and screened it for the cast of The Shining to set the mood for that movie, which was, you know, just a couple years after it came out. So that had a pretty big impact. Uh, And then Elephant Man, uh, you know, which was based on the play, which was sort of based on the true story, uh, was... You know, got a lot of it got a lot of Oscar nominations and kind of made him more of a household name as someone who was uh, making serious movies and was to be paid attention to. So it makes a lot of sense, you know, if you're if you're kind of following a traditional uh, the career of a director, which of course is not exactly what Lynch ended up doing. But um, you know, you have your your experimental art film that catches people's attention, and then you have your Oscar bait, and then A producer comes to you and says, hey, we're trying to turn this well-known property into a giant blockbuster, and we think you could do it.
0: Right. Will you you take
1: a lot of money to try to do it?
0: Right. Like, we've seen that you have a whole lot of vision, and look at these amazing things that you were able to accomplish on very small budgets. We would like to give you a big budget and an assignment to have you adapt a pre-existing work for a major audience. Make us a crowd pleaser. That was that was the assignment. This was the result.
1: And basically everyone <laughs> involved. Ended up regretting it on some level or another. <laughs> in this particular instance.
0: Right. You know. You, you could see. Uh, Lynch. Lynch gave it the old college try. Didn't he? But you know. It, it became very apparent that. This was not. A way that he was comfortable working in, and this is uh, the the producers were frustrated, and people were not having the best time on this right. on putting all this together.
1: And he accepted the job without having ever read Dune, and without having any particular interest in science fiction, which is a very interesting, especially because he ended up doing the script as well. He he wrote and directed it. So he had to really dive in, having no particular knowledge of the material when he took the job. So something I was unclear on,
2: having done a little research into the the backstory of this movie, did he read the novel after he took the job or not?
0: Well, he had to in order to adapt it.
2: Well, I sort of assumed that that was... uh, Probably the case, but I wasn't completely convinced.
1: Yeah, I believe he did. He did read it. I mean, he also had you know there were multiple failed attempts to turn Dune to turn Dune into a movie uh, in the in the decades leading up to this. Also, like the the pretty famous you know uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky attempt that had a lot of popular people attached to it and famously failed, and later had a documentary made about it. This
0: yeah. uh this this adaptation is too specific to have been written without having read the novel.
2: No, I agree. You're right. I think the I was something I was mistaken about when I asked that question is I was I was thinking that he wrote the screenplay with someone else. But in fact he's what I'm looking at right now, he's credited by himself. Yeah, there's if, if it was a collaboration, the other person
1: could have read the novel. Right. There, there were other, other screenplays like between, I think between the Yodorowsky attempt and um, the the De Laurentiis company uh, hiring Lynch, uh, Herbert Frank Herbert did his own draft, which I would really be interested to read what his own take on how to bring his story to the move to the movie screen would have been like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis and his daughter Rafaela owned the rights after the Yodorovsky project fell apart, and they they went to to David Lynch, who had just turned it, ter- had just turned down uh, the offer to direct Return of the Jedi, which would have been also very interesting and probably much higher pressure because that uh, was part of a film franchise already, even if Dune was kind of high profile and well known amongst sci-fi fans, it wasn't like he had to like match any visuals that already existed. Yeah. It's interesting because this, this is a
2: phenomenon that we talk about a lot now, and it's usually discussed as if it's a new phenomenon that you have these directors who make, like, an impressive indie film or two, and then they get hired to make huge franchise movies.
1: Yeah, the, the early career of Lynch and the history of Dune trying to be made into a movie is... It it has a lot in common with like the superhero news cycle. Yeah. For right sure. now on Twitter. <laughs> where everyone knows way too much than they need more than they need to know about what's getting made and who's attached and who isn't. Yeah.
2: Also, as I've said before, like it's hard to imagine how gross Job of the Hutt would be if David Lynch had made Return of the
1: Jedi. <laughs> It is. It's It's. interesting to think what would have appealed to him on, on that and what absolutely would not have, because it is, it is a movie with weird criminals doing drugs and having terrifying parties, uh, and a hero who must transcend the physical concerns and become part of a larger spiritual world. And all of that, I imagine, would have appealed to him very much. But I think it was just the idea of, you know, doing a sequel to something that... Mm-hmm. probably was really not up his alley. Um, he has a very a very funny quote about it that I read when he, he gave an interview about the experience where he said, uh, George makes the kind of movies he likes to make and I make the kind of movies I like to make. And the only difference is, George's movies make hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I always enjoy your David Lynch voice. Oh, thank you. It's, it's very easy to do an impression of him. He just kind of, you know, he just monotone, high-pitched... Nasal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, oh. uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's very clear looking at, at Dune and then um, at all of Lynch's other films that a thing that definitely would not have appealed to him was the idea that you would have to have had in a Star Wars film also is large battles. I mean, it's right yeah. there. Star Wars. You're going to have battles in space, battles in planets. Um, here in Dune, there's also supposed to be some battles, and my goodness, is he t- doing everything he can to avoid those scenes? <laughs> yeah. And then in in all of his other in all of his other work, um, I'd say there's um, there's some one on one violence that's very in, very intense that mm-hmm. goes on and there's a whole lot of the threat of violence but um yeah it's all it's all very very intimate very very personal um no no big battles no you know nameless hordes of people fighting against hordes of other people
1: really very few action scenes v- in any kind of traditional sense.
0: yeah very very little action more more the th- the threat of action that could happen rather than, than what does happen. then, like I said, what does happen is usually it's a, it's a very one-on-one kind of affair. So here, of course there's supposed to be some big battles because, um, of what goes on in the, in the plot of Dune. And he, he sort of, he sort of just, uh, breezes over them as, as much as he can here in this adaptation.
2: Yeah. And he also famously, uh, changed what was supposed to be a martial art into a weird sound-based weapon just so he wouldn't have a bunch of, like, karate fights to direct?
0: Yeah, the uh, the weirding way, it's never actually described what it is in the book. You know, they, they mention that there's this way of fighting that is the weirding way, which is coming from the uh, Benny Jesseret intensive body training that uh, Paul and Jessica know how to do and they teach it to all the Fremen. And yeah, so in the, the... The solution for this movie here is to sort of turn it into a kind of sound wave weapon thing. Yeah. Yeah, also, so no, no karate. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it makes that one line... Uh... My name is a killing word that's in the novel, but it's like, it just means people are going to war in his name, I think, in the novel. And then it's like ridiculously literal in the movie. Yeah,
0: (laughs) that is absolutely correct. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, instead of instead of just, you know, they're going to go and and fight people for the honor of Muad'Dib. They're, they're just literally yelling his name at their enemies, and their enemies, like, explode.
1: <laughs> yeah, for, for as much as it um, isn't necessarily ideal David Lynch material, and thus doesn't feel much like his other movies, uh, there are a number of points where, you know, you look at it, it's like, oh, of course, only he would solve, solve that storytelling problem that way. Like, yes, now uh, unearthly sounds are a weapon.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: A lot of the dialogue, which is straight from the book, also, you kind of can't tell where Lynch begins and Herbert ends, which is interesting. Like, you know, even the very first line when uh, Irulan says, a beginning is a very delicate thing. That's such a, like, that's some log lady shit to say.
2: Yes. My other favorite thing about her opening monologue is when she, like, disappears and then comes back and says, oh, I forgot to tell you.
0: Yeah, I lose my mind every single time. That is, I've got, I've got like, like three favorite moments in this movie, and that's definitely one of them. <laughs>
1: it's so funny. Yeah. Also,
2: if they had made a sequel, as hard as it is to imagine that world, <laughs> if they made a sequel, the fact that Princess Irulan narrates this movie would retroactively make sense
1: yeah it's so weird that like you know there's there's so little of her in the body of the story itself even less than there is in the book that her narrating seems so bizarre because you know jojo is the one of us here who has read the book most recently um i read it many years ago and barely remember any of it um but a lot of it being told by Irulan is explained by the format of the book, right?
0: Right, right. In the in the book, um, each chapter starts with a quotation from a fictitious book. Um, I think all but one, you know, it's it's cited that they are they are the books that Irulan has written, um, and then I think all but one of them are. Just all these different books that are are just about about Paul, um, histories and quotations and glossaries and profiles on uh, different different characters as part of various various different biographies that she has written about him. <laughs> um, so she she has very little presence in the plot aside from that she's kind of a kind of a constant it's it's sort of a foreshadowing for the end of end of the book having that that going on but it's yeah kind of just a little uh philosophical context or a tiny little bit of an info dump at the beginning of of each chapter
2: yeah um and one of the ways that I feel like you can immediately tell that there was some concern about people watching this movie and having any idea what's going on is that you get the opening narration by Irulan, and then you immediately cut to, like, a whole different introduction from the Spacing Guild. It's like, here are the planets that matter. Here's who's on them. Here's what's the first thing that's going to happen.
0: Yep
1: yeah it's it's one of the many things that is um sort of clunky and also not very lynchian which explains probably why he wasn't sure how to solve it very well is this whole idea of needing to convey so much world building and political intrigue amongst factions of people who aren't even necessarily characters right away, which is really kind of the exact opposite of his style and it it really doesn't serve the movie very well to the 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 degree to which it expects you to understand what's going on. <laughs>
0: I'd, I'd be so interested to see an adaptation of this story that was actually very Lynchian. That is just very unconcerned with the world building and just sort of sort of throws you into things and lets you lets you try to pick up what's relevant as what's going along, as what's going on. Um, just along with the dialogue, especially because. I mean, there, there is a lot of people having conversations about what the plot is. But also, it's a story where pretty much everyone is speaking on two levels On any at any given moment. Um, everyone is... It's a world where nobody trusts anybody else. And mm-hmm. everyone is deceitful on some level. Nobody's really very sympathetic in the whole story. Because... Um, it's all of these political intrigues where no one can trust anyone, including their family members. Um, Everyone's trying to betray one another to get money and power. So there's a whole lot of people having meetings or a dinner party or something, and they're having a conversation and they're trying to read one another's body language. And so they can tell like, ah, there's this tiny tiny curl of this person's lip when they say this word or there's a slight inflection on the way they say this person's name, which tells me the depth of their hatred or that they're actually lying about this. Well, now I'm going to twitch my pinky slightly to uh, communicate in a secret battle language or use a coded phrase so that the people who are on my team
1: know that I
0: know that this person is lying to us about their intentions. Um, the, whole, the whole book is, is full of that. And then there's this thing going on where the religious teachings of a group have been planted in a community like hundreds of years ago, which that community has interpreted as prophecies And we're going to manipulate these people's beliefs to secure our place. But then it turns out we're just fulfilling the prophecy. (laughs) And also, there are drugs that give you superpowers.
2: Yes, multiple drugs that give you different superpowers.
0: Yes, multiple different drugs that give you different mental superpowers.
2: Yeah, and and of course, related to that, there's the there's these very important like different. Categories of people, the Mintats who are like human computers, although they mostly just seem like pretty smart dudes. Uh, yeah,
0: they're, su- they're supposed to be like super logical, but they all seem like they're kind <laughs> of dumb. None of them seem particularly impressive.
2: Um, and then there's uh, uh, Dr. Yui, who is a, uh, a Sook doctor who has imperial conditioning which is represented by a little diamond on his forehead Um, right which means
0: that he has been like so conditioned to save life that it's unthinkable that he could ever be responsible for not doing everything he can to save life
2: right so then of course he turns traitor right you know he's really upset about it though to his credit (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah he seems very upset yeah
2: um and then there's the the uh uh benny Jesuit sisterhood who are like uh like uh space nuns that pr- except they get married um who practice eugenics as some sort of long term plan um
0: Right. There's just a very, lot of, there's very a lot intense of factions. Yeah, very intense secret human breeding program. And for some reason, like other people will go along with this. Like other powerful people know that their that the Benny Gesserits whole deal is human human breeding, like like you Breed dogs for specific traits, like they're doing that, um, and everyone everyone knows this and knows that you know they they won't be told what the the heritage of everybody is. But um, I don't know for some reason they, they go along with it. It's unclear what what the the purported purpose of the Jesuit is. Except they also seem to be a kind of sort of boarding school for all the various princesses in the world, and they get taught martial arts.
1: And then on top of all these factions, like multiple major characters go by like three different names interchangeably throughout <laughs> the story. Yes.
2: Oh, and one faction that we haven't even that didn't even come up in that discussion is the uh, the uh, spacing guild who are the only people who can, who have, like, faster-than-light travel, because to make faster-than-light travel workable, you have to, like, enclose yourself in a chamber of spice gas. If you keep doing that, it turns you into a giant slug, uh, which makes it harder to socialize with other people, I would imagine.
0: Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yeah, like, no one's ever seen a navigator, which is... Yeah, a person who's been injected with so much concentrated spice that they turn into I think it kinda looks like a cuttlefish in this yeah. movie. Yeah, I always think think cuttlefish mm-hmm. when I see it. Yeah. And they their their power to see into the future is so great that they can fold space time physically To move a whole spaceship through space-time and get to another planet. So,
2: since you've read the novel a lot more recently than I have, uh, in the novel, I feel like my memory of it is different from the film in that I was thinking that they don't... that the spice in their mutation doesn't give the Navigators... The power to fold space in the novel, it makes it like it makes it safe. It enables them literally to navigate through that jump. Or am
0: I just remembering that wrong? I don't think it, it goes into it in very much detail in the book. Maybe it does in one of the sequels. I've read three of the sequels a long time ago and they were mostly incomprehensible. And became like increasingly more incomprehensible so you don't say <laughs> uh, yeah the, the first one I have actually read it several times and I read it just recently in preparation for this podcast but um, I don't I don't remember that particular detail. I remember that you don't see the navigators or you know have a scene with them. In the, in the book, that's something that was kind of made up for this movie. So um, have have some exposition and to get like a cool, weird creature thing in there. Yeah. Fold, folding space-time is my, my understanding of how it's supposed to
2: work. And of course, the scene where they travel to Arrakis, where you see the third stage navigator in the ship doing his thing is one of the more like uh, over the top Lynchian moments in the movie. Cause it's just sort of leaves behind concern about anyone understanding what's going on and just shows you a bunch of
1: lights and the cuttlefish man
2: shooting beams out of his head.
1: Yeah. And yeah. the navigator itself could be like something from a razor head. Yeah. And then you've got these, you know, guys in black leather who talk into giant, weird, old-fashioned microphones. Yeah. Yeah. And they never
2: say, but if the, if the cuttlefish is a third stage navigator, which they do say, then presumably the guys that look human but kind of gross are first stage. And the guys who wear hoods over their heads and their heads seem to be strangely shaped are second stage.
0: That's what I have assumed. Yeah, like these are people in different stages of turning into a cuttlefish.
2: So it's, uh, it's it's quite a life's
1: pursuit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. But yeah, so they're they're the only people who can who have have this this technology where they can go through space and it's it's uh done with the spice and the spice only comes from Arrakis. And of course, in the book it's a it's a huge secret that the spice comes from the sandworms. Like nobody nobody knows what spice actually is. In the movie everyone seems to seems to know what that big secret is. Which makes the big the big plan at the end kind of like, I oh, okay. <laughs> But it's fine. It's fine because there's a knife fight. So Yes. So who cares about, about the other stuff when there's a knife fight?
2: <laughs> a knife fight between Kyle MacLachlan and Sting, which is one of the better knife fights you could imagine.
1: It's true.
0: It's true, though.
2: <laughs> um, that's,
0: that's good stuff.
2: <laughs> In the beginning of the movie, when we see the Emperor's uh throne room before the navigators come in one of my favorite things is the guy leading like six or eight bulldogs yes mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of like oh it's space england
0: right yeah it's they they very much have that have that kind of kind of thing going on and the costumes are sort of a um A sixteenth century Spanish Empire thing going on with a little bit of a, a more eighteenth century military uniform. hmm Kind of kind of combination. It's good. Yes. It's- I'm into it. I really love all. I love all the costumes in this movie. I I really love all the costumes.
2: Uh, yeah. Uh, Bob Ringwood, who designed the costumes for this movie, uh, designed a lot of good costumes for a yes. lot of genre movies with good costumes in them.
1: Yes, indeed. He, he also designed the costumes for all four Burton and Schumacher Batman movies, which mm-hmm. makes perfect sense when you when you look at this. Yes. Yeah.
2: I remember. Being a kid, not having seen Dune yet. This may actually be why I saw Dune for the first time, but I'm not 100% sure. But I was 10 when Tim Burton's Batman came out. And of course, I was obsessed with it. And I was also like just old enough to like start uh, like reading like magazines that weren't necessarily aimed at kids and stuff like that. Uh, and specifically, I used to buy uh, like Starlog and Comic Scene. These are all things that don't exist anymore. But I feel like the names are self-explanatory. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, <coughs> excuse me. I specifically remember the first reference to Dune that I was like fully aware of was the movie version of Batman's costume being compared to a Dune still suit, and I was like, "What's Dune? What's a still suit? I should look into this." <laughs>
1: There is definite that is definitely
2: a resemblance that
1: exists. Yes, I believe he also did all the Alien movies. Um, I did at least a couple of them.
2: Yeah, he didn't. <laughs> uh, this doesn't reflect on him, but he only started doing Alien movies when they started going downhill. He did okay, Alien Three I could, and Alien Resurrection. He didn't. Do
1: the I couldn't remember if he had done the original.
0: Okay. That that still makes sense as like all costumes by the I, by the same person. I
1: remember him being on one of the many alien anthology box set bonus features talking about uh, David Fincher being an asshole to work with. For some reason that stuck in my head. But, <laughs> but also it's another connection that kinda of makes sense. It's like, yeah, it's it's an alien movie plus a Batman movie. Yeah. Yeah. And the worms were were done by um, Carlo Rambaldi, whose team also made the Xenomorphs in the first movie. They took, took Giger's design and did the mechanical stuff to it.
2: Something I found disappointing, uh, and I did the research to make sure that I wasn't wrong. Now, I I like uh, the actor, I think his name is Freddie Jones, who plays Thufur Howitt, mm-hmm. uh, the good Mintat. Um, mm-hmm. In that first scene on Caladan, where he and the two other guys come into... Uh, Come into uh, to Paul's room. Freddie Jones is the only actor that did not go on to star in a major, uh, beloved genre series in the next ten years.
1: I guess that's true. He did. He did do other David Lynch projects, but not Twin Peaks.
2: Right, because um, the other three are uh, are of course Kyle MacLachlan, who started Twin Peaks among many other things, and uh, Dean Stockwell, who would go on to, uh, to play Al the Hologram in Quantum Leap and, of course, Patrick Stewart, uh, who I think did some sci-fi TV as well. <laughs> Sounds familiar.
0: He might have, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh,
2: something I was reminded of when I did the uh, Dreamcasting column for the New Dune is that almost none of these people look like they were described in the novel at all. Uh, the character that Patrick Stewart plays is an is described as an ugly lump of a man yeah <laughs>
0: with a with a with a huge scar on his face and of course Patrick Stewart is dignified and gorgeous and they a very
1: did, a very, it, a very clean person yes not not uh, hygienically necessarily, but just kind of design wise yeah. right He's sleek. <laughs> they did give him a scar along his jawline, but it's in like...
2: The place that could distract the least from his handsomeness of anywhere on his face.
0: Yeah, right. yeah, you don't, you do not notice it at all.
1: <laughs> but he does such good things with his lines, right? Like, oh my god, no one, no one was more born to say "mood is a thing for cattle and love play" it's than true. Patrick Stewart. <laughs> cattle, love play.
2: It's wonderful. Um, also, it's really obvious if if the last name wasn't enough. It's really obvious from the description in the book that uh, Wellington Yue is Asian. Yeah. Um, but they yes. just gave Dean Stockwell a little mustache and said it'll be fine. Um, Duncan Idaho also, in, in, from the description of the novel, seems to be much less white than he is in the movie.
0: Yeah. And from the, the description in the book, I've always just assumed like, oh, th- he's a he's a black character.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it definitely says he has like a dark complexion and uh,
0: black and curly dark hair. curly hair. Yeah,
2: but you know, it's an early '80s genre movie, so like they were even more inclined to make everything very white than they are in these kinds of movies
1: now. It's true.
2: I love how the little uh, the little tablets that they look at things on are like less advanced than the ones we have now, and this is nine thousand years in the future.
0: Well, it's nine thousand years in the future, and they don't have any any computers.
2: Yeah, well, true.
0: <laughs> These are like, it's it's like really fancy, like microfiche that they have. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, all of all the computing power is done by the mentats with the power of their giant eyebrows. Uh, on that on that note, I was I was saying you know I've got like three favorite moments <sighs> in this in this film. My number one favorite is uh, every moment Brad Dourif is on screen and says or does anything.
2: (laughs) Yes. Brad Dourif is peak Brad Dourif in this movie, and it's wonderful. so (laughs) Brad Dourif. He
0: is is the Dourifest. Yes. (laughs) It is amazing.
2: (laughs) Something I love in this movie is any time there's a moment of humor, and there's only like two or three. Uh, and one of the best ones, uh, and I may be stealing this from you, Jojo, this may have been what you're about to say is, is the, the, the discussion of whose plan it is on Gidi Yes. Pride.
0: Oh my God. Incredible.
2: Uh, the, the, the little like sideways glance that, that Brad Dourif gives when he says the plan.
0: It is Perfection. <laughs> it is perfection, and the 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 stilted way he says everything. Like there is a there's a period between each separate word in a mm-hmm. sentence he gives.
1: You can tell the scenes where David Lynch was having the most fun was anything on uh, Planet Hark- Harkonnen. Yeah. Yes. She just gets wild on Harkonnen.
0: On Planet Gedi Prime. Yes. <laughs>
2: I love when uh, they show GD Prime from space, it has this, like, spot of light on the dark side of it. The, I can't figure out what would create that, but it sure is interesting.
0: I don't, I don't know.
2: <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it's always planet with a spot of light and then, like, building with a mouth.
0: Yes. and it's it's weird and industrial and everyone on the whole planet has red hair
2: yes uh, and the 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 less fancy people all have like one stripe shaved out of the middle
1: of it
0: yes and it is the planet where no one has dogs because they are evil
1: their prisoners must milk tiny cat bodies <laughs>
0: That's Which is so some, weird.
1: Some weird shit that didn't come from anywhere.
0: Yeah, that did not come <laughs> from the book. It came from the book that you know they have through for how it captured, and they're giving him a giving him a poison, um, and he can't he can't leave or he's gonna he's gonna die because he won't get the antidote um it's completely made up for this movie that the antidote comes from milking a hairless cat that has a rat taped to it (laughs) which they don't even bring
1: up just duct taped on there it clearly (laughs) wasn't in the script or they probably would have mentioned it at the last minute someone was like yes strap a rat on there
0: (laughs) i love it so fucking much You must milk this smooth little cat body. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now,
2: you know what character I strongly dislike for uh, both visceral and ideological reasons? Is it the Baron? It's the Baron.
1: <laughs> it's definitely the Baron. <laughs> I had a feeling it was the yep. Baron. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Uh, this evil, is a problematic fat, gay, story. disgusting yep. Baron. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: yeah, he is, uh, he is, he is vile. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and it bothers me. That is me. stuff not oh, to excuse the movie or anything, but that is stuff that is all there in the book. <laughs> oh yeah, the,
0: the the like open sores aren't, but everything right. else is. Yeah. yeah,
2: I really that's another thing that specifically bothers me about the Baron is not that the open sores are gross; it's that they look fake. Yeah, that he looks like a guy with a bunch of latex on his face, and that yeah. it, I find that distracting.
0: shrug (laughs) it's it's gross
2: (laughs) yeah um yeah and while i obviously don't like the part where he like uh molests a a, a young man by bleeding him to death and smearing his own blood all over him Mm -hmm. i do kind of like watching sting and the other guy watch it
0: yeah yeah that's that's the that's the the best part of that, that bit is their weird reactions. Yeah. It's, Sting Sting doesn't have a whole lot of lines in this film, but he, he says a whole lot with his eyes. He sure does. Yeah.
2: And his reaction is so complex because there's a like there's kind of a clear implication. I think it's stronger in the book, but it's there in the movie that he's been uh sexually abused by Baron Harkonen. Uh, yes probably for his whole life um and so there's a moment when in that scene when the 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 baron is attacking that other kid where you feel like he's disturbed but then later he's like he's kind of fine it's like right it's,
0: it's it's a it's a complicated thing where he's um uh Disturbed and trying to hide it And also he's kind of into it And trying to hide it And yeah. also he just would really He mostly would just really rather Be anywhere else At that moment But he's trying to hide it
2: Yes Um. And The other guy uh, Raban, is that his name? Yes He's just sort of into it. He's just like, "Ooh, bad things are happening. I love bad things."
0: Yeah, yeah. Because Raban, we're supposed to understand is like is is just as nasty as his as his uncle is, and that um, Fade Sting's character is uh, the the smarter one, and and therefore the uh, the more. The more sympathetic one, and also he's he's the pretty one, and um, uh, the Baron has this has this whole whole plot going on of of pitting these his two nephews against one another in this in this sort of subplot of of getting Raban out of the way and and manipulating fade to get fade to do whatever he wants as his as his heir Mm -hmm. because it's a very complicated story (laughs) (laughs) i love
2: that uh jodorowsky wanted to cast Mick jagger as fade and lynch cast sting as fade i feel like if uh uh what's his name the guy that's making the new version like if he doesn't get a rock
1: star what is he doing
0: Right, like he is good. doing things wrong if he does not get a rock star to play fade.
1: I remember when we dis- when we decided to do dune on our last episode about mystery Man. we were talking about how uh Villeneuve needs to uh would need to ask Grimes to score the new dune, which I wasn't expecting to be such a topical uh <laughs> point of conversation by the time we got around to the episode
0: and I keep thinking. Like ever since you know the the subject of Grimes's dating life has has become become newsworthy. I keep thinking that oh, is this is this like a like Paul marrying Irulan to like secure <laughs> secure power in the universe? Like, is is that what she's doing?
2: I mean, if we learned that that Grimes my, was an alien princess. Thought. I don't think I would be surprised.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But yeah, I, I keep thinking that like, oh no, this is this is like a complicated like
1: there's a strategic like this man is trying to send things into space and so I must <laughs> I must be near him for observation <laughs> purposes.
0: Right, I have to I have to uh, gather all the power of the landstrad against him. <laughs> by by <laughs> A strategic political marriage.
2: Man, you know, there's, there's so many parallels to Dune in the world these day. These days, I mean, we literally have a uh, second stage Navigator as president. <laughs> Heyo. <laughs> like two thirds of the way onto being a giant slug.
0: <laughs> indeed, indeed.
1: Yeah, who would, who would be the rock star who would play Fade if we made this right now?
2: Um, well, what I was doing who, it
0: for: Oh yeah, column. I remember you,
1: you had somebody right? It was uh, I put Harry Styles in there.:
2: That's right. That's right. He's done some acting, and he's like got that like ridiculously handsome pop star look like Sting. It just seems to make sense.
1: Yes, it does. Sting in this movie is basically doing uh, a thing he did once when he was on Star Night Live, where he did an impression of Billy Idol. <laughs> Sting as Fade is basically Sting as Billy Idol as Fade. That makes so Which much sense.
0: Which is just Chef Kiss. Perfect. Perfect.
1: And I guess as long as we're talking about Fade, we could talk about you know the famous shot that wasn't quite as famous as it could have been.
0: Oh yes, where um, he he comes out of the uh, the steam bath. And Sting was just fully prepared to do this scene just completely nude. There was almost just full frontal nudity in this film. And at the, like at the last minute, the producers like found out this was what was going to happen. And they're like, no, you cannot do that. So come up with some kind of costume for him at the last minute. And so he's got this little, little metal. Little,
1: little winged briefs.
0: winged briefs. That's what they are. <laughs> That was a very last minute thing. But uh, yeah, he was he was just going to let it all hang out there on the screen for us all to see in space.
2: Uh, Sting has no shortage of confidence.
1: That's true.
2: (laughs) Wasn't his next role after this Dr. Frankenstein?
1: That sounds right. In uh, The Bride? The Bride with uh, Jennifer Beals and the Elsa Lanchester role? I've never seen that, which is weird given, you know, who we are, but also <laughs> I've heard it's so abysmal it's not even worth watching. Yeah, but that's true of it... a lot of things I enjoy. So. I we should
0: <laughs> see it on principle.
1: Yeah, we really should. I mean, I,
2: I haven't seen it since I was very young, and I don't remember it well, but like, we are three people who are sitting here talking about how good David Lynch is So I feel like we shouldn't take other people's word for right. whether or not it's and good.
1: The first time we recorded a podcast together, it was to talk about how much the movie Bride of Frankenstein influenced all of our lives. So if any three people should, like, own a copy of The Bride, it's probably the three of us. True.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: So, yeah, lots of uh, lots of people in this cast who would go on to be David Lynch regulars, or at least do a couple more. Like, obviously, as we said, McLaughlin, who, if I recall, was a, was found by by the De Laurentiis's and Lynch was probably involved in the process too. But I know that Dina De Laurentiis could not quite pronounce Kyle because of his thick Italian accent. It came out as kale, which is still what David Lynch calls Kyle McLaughlin. That's where that came from.
0: Right. My um, buddy kale.
1: Yeah. Um, and uh, Brad Dorif popped up again in blue velvet uh, as did Dean Stockwell in the mm-hmm. same scene. Freddie Jones had been in Elephant Man, and he was later in uh, Wild at Heart. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, we already spoke of Jack Nance.
1: And, of course, and Everett McGill. Everett
0: McGill! This is what my other favorite moment of this film is. My my second favorite moment of the film is when he says, I will take the boy man.
1: <laughs> it's I just, so good. Sometimes one of us will say that to the other at the slightest provocation.
0: Yeah, that that line has just worked its way into our casual everyday conversation. I will, take, I
1: will take the boy, man.
0: Like you need to you know And when we
1: say it we tend to turn it more like he sounds more like Big Ed on Twin Peaks when we do it than yeah. he does in the actual movie. Because I remember it being just Big Ed. <laughs>
0: We, we, we push the accent. But yeah, one of us needs to, you know, like carry something across the room or something. It's, it turns into, I will take the boy man. Because <laughs> the, it's, a, it's a magical moment.
2: The funny thing about Everett McGill, and, and I mean, there's no confusion about it because Dune is, what, like eight years before Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's always seems like, it, it seems backwards. It, Edward McGill, feel, Everett McGill feels like the guy... That you cast as like the the forthright, well-meaning gas station owner, and then later, when you need a big guy to play the leader of the tribe of desert people, you're like, hey, you know, the guy who played the the gas station owner could do it,
0: right? Because he's my pal. I've got his phone number. Yeah, right. you're 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 totally right. It seems it's that it seems very backwards.
2: because um, I I like him as uh, as Stillgar, but he's. He's, it, it, he already feels like he's playing against type.
0: right? Actually, and Andrew was saying the other day when we were watching this, like, kind of how charming that casting is.
1: It's one of those choices that seems strange at first, and you think about, like, yeah, this should be kind of a, you know, kind of a redneck, basically, for all intents and purposes, who is, you know, welcoming you in a, to, to the, the ways of his backwoods people. Mm-hmm. From the point of view of Paul, that's that's what he would seem to be.
0: Right, but it's 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 charming that that that's kind of the route we've gone with the with the fremen here instead of um, a take on them that's more like a,
1: they're scary primitive foreigners.
0: Yeah, like the the mysterious other. I mean, like you know, orientalist the way that the novel definitely is because you know, uh, the. The novel, like, the Fremen people are basically just, like, Arab people in space. Mm-hmm. Like, so many of their words are just, like, Arabic words, you know? It's it's just kind of that as the exotic uh, flavor of of this, this group of, of desert-dwelling people on this other planet. So, instead of going that route, where, you know, leaning into, like... They are uh, mysterious Arabic people. Instead, is like you know, ah, well, they're just they're just a bunch of folk from the sticks,
1: Pe- people of the land, <laughs> yeah, sons of the soil, sons of, sons of the soil,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. I the scene where Paul to cho- Paul gets his like new names. I feel like works. It's such a ridiculous bit of dialogue that's like completely baffling uh, if you haven't read the book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Think about uh, the mouse and the moonlight.
2: Yeah, I I feel like it works better than it would otherwise because it's a scene between Kyle McLaughlin and Everett McGill. (laughs) No other two actors could like make that scene like a seem like a human interaction the way that they do.
1: You should be called Moody. <laughs> 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 it's such a weird parade of people. Like every time I watch this, I'm surprised by one or two people who pop up who I forgot. Like I always forget Ma- Max von Sydow is in this movie. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like, get to do, do very much. No, it's such a weird little part. Like I feel like he's one of those actors who is you know thought of as extremely prestigious because he's been in a lot of you know, great masterpieces for like 65 years now. And yet he will basically show up for anything.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He seems like he's been in a lot of masterpieces, but also he was in
1: needful things. Right. He's just been in a lot of things. Law of averages says he's probably great.
0: <laughs> you know, he, he shows up to do the work. He is a professional. God mm-hmm. bless him.
1: Showing up for one scene performances in sci-fi movies where you don't expect him as
0: yeah. he does. Yeah. yeah.
1: And uh, Sean Young, who had a pretty interesting career going forward from this movie. Yeah, I mostly remember her from the whole Catwoman thing, right? And I guess she had just been in uh, in Blade Runner, which is the other thing, mm-hmm. probably the the single thing she's most famous for, and then immediately went into this. And then yeah, a lot of um, a lot of kind of famous misfortunes. Of, failing to get roles or getting fired or things going wrong yeah. or getting injured or things
2: like that. She doesn't really have a lot of charisma in this movie, but I don't think that's her fault. I think it's this movie's fault.
1: Yeah. I think it's David Lynch being presented with writing a romance scene. Yeah. A not, romance scene really based, a based on he Frank Herbert. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. It, which in itself is a very specific thing. And uh,
0: uh, yeah. Yeah. Frank Frank Herbert's source material gave him nothing to work with, and then, you know, kind every every character is just sort of stoic. Mm-hmm. So that's that's just what what she is here. Just stoic, like everyone is. yeah
2: Oh, and we we're talking about all the surprising cast members. We have to talk about Alicia
1: Witt. Yes. Uh, yes. Another another David Lynch regular, for yes. you know, all you know, 40 years of her life or whatever. She just keeps popping up once every every now and then at different ages as she grows up.
2: <laughs> uh, when I was a teenager, I had the biggest crush on Alicia Witt on Sybil.
1: That's right. That was her, wasn't it? Yeah, she I was the teenage show. daughter on
2: Sybil. And she yeah. was like, she was very, she was like, I feel like, she was one of the few, I guess it was her and Darlene on Roseanne who were like believably like counterculture in a nineties way. It's true. Um, yeah. And then of course she was also in, uh, uh, Cecil B. Demented, which is a, a movie that I love, although it doesn't get a lot mm-hmm. of talk these days.
1: It's true. And um, yeah, she, she played, uh, Gerst and Hayward at age, like, fifteen and again at age forty in seasons two and three of Twin Peaks. And a lot of people did like there wasn't there was no reason to even know that's who that was in season three, which I love that like you had to read the credits to catch. Oh, that was that was the same character. Right. Yeah. They
0: did put her in pink satin.
1: They did make the visual <laughs> connection. Yeah. And of
2: course she's only like eight and looks much younger in this, but she was like she had already gotten attention as like a child genius. Mm-hmm. So they knew that she could, like, handle it. Um,
1: cause I think And then they dubbed her voice, which I think doesn't work very well.
2: <laughs> yeah, which is weird, because the whole reason she ended up in the movie is because she had been on TV, like, uh, performing Shakespeare monologue when she was, like, five.
1: Um, right. For some reason, they felt to sell this, like, maturing at a frightening rate, as the narration puts it, that they had to make her sound otherworldly and older, but it just makes it sound like a bad dub job that was done for no reason. Yeah.
0: yeah.
2: Um but the best thing that she does in this movie is that like uh moment of ecstatic violence where she like has the knife and she has like the little pose. Uh Yes. Yeah, it's it's very yeah. good. Uh and of course she gets to kill the Baron. Yes. Or I guess she, like, starts the process of killing the Baron and the sandworm finishes it.
0: It's a team effort.
1: <laughs> and they high five. Yep. <laughs>
0: Please Ray.
2: <laughs> oh, another uh, star that went on to Great Things is the line, uh walk without r- rhythm and you won't attract the worm, which went on to right. uh, star in a Fatboy Slim song. That's right. Co-starring with Christopher Walken. That's right. <laughs> yes how do you feel about sandworms? Is that a weird question?
1: (laughs) In what
2: what way? (laughs) (laughs) I, okay, so sandworms, obviously, even though they end up being like mounts for, for Paul and the Fremen, they're not characters. They don't have personalities.
0: Right. But They're, they're so, they're monsters. Yep.
2: Yeah. They're, they're, they're good monsters. And I think what makes them good monsters Uh is not just that they're indescribably huge. It's they're indescribably huge, but they're almost like, uh, they're both personalityless and featureless. They have these sort of like three sided double layer mouths, but otherwise they're just giant tubes as worms are. And right. They j- but they're like so enormous. You can't even contemplate their existence.
1: hmm. Right. They're basically like storms. Yeah. Just bad things that happen in nature that can kill you if you don't look out. <laughs>
0: right, which is is very much the way the narrative kind of wants wants you to think about them is that they're 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 described the same way that sandstorms are or that like heat is where it's they're a, a a natural feature of the world and you learn to you you can't fight it you just kind of learn how to live alongside it. Right. Yeah. Uh yeah, they're They're pretty they're pretty cool. Big and iconic and it's weird that they have teeth. Um it looks really cool, but it's weird that they have teeth because they're supposed to be living off of like basically sand plankton. Mhm. So, you'd think they would have like baleen. Right but uh, but the teeth are very cool looking. It's a, it's a good visual when they when they roar and you see all these all these layers of teeth going down there, down their throats. Yeah. Um one thing about about Dune that's always struck me is, you know, as we as we mentioned, there's the the all the horrible things going on with the Baron and the way that um, the story is very homophobic.
2: Mhm.
0: Considering, you know, that it's also a story that is about, like, men bonding by, like, getting a giant, like, phallic creature in between their legs. And they, like, straddle it and they ride it around the sands together true. while they're wearing, like, fetish gear. <laughs>
2: Yeah, in particular, the scene of, like, uh, uh, Stilgar and his boy-man, Paul. Right. uh, Like, joyfully riding a giant worm through the desert.
0: Right. It's a a story where, like, the coolest things that happen are that and men having, like, shirtless knife fights. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, for all that it's, like, an extremely homophobic story, it's also, like really unintentionally homoerotic. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's both homophobic and homophilic. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Very, very much both of those things at the same time.
2: I'm sort of baffled by the idea of culture in Dune. And when I say that specifically, what I mean is that the Fremen have a Bene Gesserit reverend mother uh because it like it seems like they would ha- they're so separate from everybody like nobody knows much about them, and they live way out in the desert by themselves and they're this whole like this whole separate tribe of people uh yeah, but it's, then they it's, still it's, have one of those
0: right it's a it's a weird thing going on with the fremen where they have this they have this very intense culture that's all their own that's very much born of the necessities of living on a planet that has almost no moisture and all of that so that they're this very like hard intense people whose you know cultural trappings are all based around what are the few materials that they have to work with and trying to lose as little moisture as possible from themselves and their their uh, uh, rock cave cities and all of that. Um, but also their entire culture gets changed because a single person comes from off planet and like tells them something. And this happens like three different times. <laughs> it happens when, like back in history, when the Benny Gesserit somehow came to this planet for the first time and like the first Benny Gesserit came among them and was like, um, what's up? You don't know me, but I'm your Reverend Mother. I'm gonna be like your high priestess and uh, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of prophecies. This is your religion now. In addition to worshiping the giant sandworms, you will also uh, have the Benny Gesserit we're gonna we're gonna teach you things, and we're going to give you a bunch of like quotations and prophecies. So it's like that happens. Um, the the whole thing where they are stockpiling water in caves mm-hmm. all over the planet in a very intense way um, as part of a plan to partially like in secret partially terraform the planet so that they uh, would still have deep desert for the sandworms, but also it wouldn't be such an intense environment and Arrakis could be a paradise. Um, that has all only been going on for two generations. Cause that was started by Dr. Kynes's father. He showed up and was like, Hey y'all, I'm going to be a Fremen now. And they're like, okay. And then he's like, so I've done the math. And if we all stockpile water, we could terraform this planet in 500 years. And they're all like, all right, we'll all go along with that. So (laughs) that thing, which is like a huge dominating part of their culture, has only been there for like two generations. Hmm. And then Paul shows up and they're like, ah, You fit with all these prophecies that the Bene Gesserit gave us like 300 years ago or whenever. And uh, you are our warrior messiah now. So you can yell at rocks. So this happens like three times where it's like, here's one person and um, there's like, you know, affecting just populations of uh, thousands to millions of people on this planet. That they all just kind of, kind of, kind of go along with. I guess the spice is sort of giving them a little bit of a, like a hive mind. Yeah, I mean, to, to be a, fair, to they're degree, all super stoned all the time. They are. Um, <laughs> but they don't have Benny Gesserit training, so even though they all have all this spice in their every waking moment, they do not have superpowers.
2: Right. Um,
0: just Paul does because he is from a different planet <laughs> he, he's the new guy who shows up so he's the one with superpowers
2: well they don't address this in the movie at all but obviously the uh, the Bene Gesserit have some kind of relationship with Arrakis because they take the water of life
0: Right. Yes. Like they, the Fremen know what the water of life is, and the Bene Gesserit know what the water of life is, and like nobody else knows the secret that if you take this specific, uh, the specific vomit from a baby sandworm, if you drown it in water, Mm -hmm. that is going to be this specific. Because
1: they accidentally did that one day. <laughs>
0: yeah, that will be the specific form of the spice drug that will give you super concentrated superpowers.
2: Right. Uh, that
0: only Reverend, uh, only Reverend Mothers get, and the one dude who is going to be the Haderach.
2: Right. I sort of feel like rewatching this this most recent time when Paul takes the water of life. He kind of turns into Dale Cooper.
1: He does.
0: He super does. You're that, right.
1: And that sequence, the the kind of visual montage that follows is one of the more Lynchian parts of the movie. It, it's sort of a precursor to the Twin Peaks part eight sort of <laughs> cataclysmic light show that happens with things swirling on the camera for a while there.
0: Kind of is. Kind yeah. Of is.
1: But yeah, he definitely uh, like he starts getting like really excited to tell people things. Right, in, which in is like a, a, a Dale Cooper thing.
0: That yeah, that's Where great. He,
1: he's got the smile like he's got a secret that he's trying to tell you, but he's not going to tell you. Right. <laughs> he doesn't have it before that, but he has it afterwards, and it's very it's very Dale Cooper. Right.
0: I feel like I'm like I'm dunking on Dune a whole lot, and I want to be clear that all my dunking is on the book.
1: Well, yes, but it's also very well-deserved.
0: <laughs> I re- I really like this movie, and I don't want to make it sound like I don't, because I love this movie... And actually, you know, Dune is one of the books I've read the most and was hugely influential on me at a young age. It's just that it's
1: I feel like you kinda have to attach a butt to that. I mean, but, you, can't,
0: you can't just go around
1: saying you right, were hugely influenced also... by Dune and not sound like an asshole.
0: <laughs> but it's also like super problematic and also dumb as hell.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: I just wanna I just wanna make that real clear that I know that it's dumb as hell and very problematic, but also I love it and then I love this movie that n- they didn't have a good time making. And that uh, was not a successful film. But I like it and I find it very charming. It's, and yeah, I like I like a lot of the things that it is doing. It's
1: fun to watch yeah. and it's mostly very earnest. And it's... Uh, some things work, work really well. And the things that don't work well kind of do so entertainingly.
0: It's yeah, got totally. A, it's, got, it's got so many actors I like... Wearing costumes that I like a whole lot. Yeah. That, Sometimes that's all you need. That's Yeah, that's that's mostly what I ask out of science fiction or yep. fantasies. Just have have a bunch of actors I like and give them weird costumes.
2: <laughs> I feel like, um, and it seems like the three of us may have talked about this on some podcast before, because it's a very us discussion. But when people judge the quality of a film, most people mainly... Think slash talk about writing and acting. Yeah. And uh, I feel like Mise en Sin does not get enough respect.
1: Agreed.
0: Yes.
2: This,
1: this movie has great Mise en Sin. It does. Yes. Um. It's, it's this strange position where when people talk about how bad it is, I simultaneously agree and want to fight them. Because it's like. It's like, that's not even, like, is it good or not? It's really not a discussion that I think needs to be had. It clearly it clearly isn't uh, achieving the goals it set out to achieve, but also it's kind of great. Yeah.
0: It's, it like, has asking, a scene... it's like asking, is a sandworm good or not? <laughs> <laughs> it just is. Just respect its power. <laughs> and let and let it change you.
2: I mean this movie's kind of like a sandworm. It's also kind of like a hairless cat in a strapped in a box with a rat duct tape to it. It's a lot like that, yeah.
0: <laughs> it is a whole lot like that. Again, just <laughs> being held by it, sting. Just accept it and let it let it be, flow. Let it let it flow. Let the spice flow. Let this film be the antidote to the poison that is forced upon you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I guess in in talking about the problematic themes, we should maybe bring up how it like just cuts out kind of the the wrap up part of the ending that sort of is what the book was all about, but they just take it out of the movie because it's weird. Oh, about um where Paul's just like, I will marry Irulan, and Irulan's like, what? Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, she's kind of like, you Who know... Never,
1: they have never interacted in the movie up to now.
0: No, they haven't, but she's she, she's very much just like, you know what? My father's always hated me, and I was always going to get married off to somebody that I've never met, and at least you're not a gross old guy. At least you're cute. Okay. <laughs> What's up? Let's get married.
1: That, what is that famous last line? It's like the last line of the book, right? The, yeah. the concubines and wives discussion.
0: Right. The uh, the last line of the book goes like, um, "Jess Jessica is speaking to Chani, and there's this whole thing in the book where um, Duke Lido had never married Jessica, so that there would who was you know his his concubine, uh, he had never." Even though he loved her and he didn't have anybody else in his life, he never married her so that there was always the possibility open for a potential political marriage that could have caused an alliance with one of the other noble houses. And it's a whole thing. And then um, Jessica, you know, she's, she's cool with Paul being with Chani, but also she's like, ah, okay, but, Even though he is Paul Muad'Dib, this great warrior leader of the Fremen people, he's still also uh, Duke Atreides, so he's going to have to get married to a noblewoman at some point. Um, So, like, okay, it's cool that he's having a good time with Cheney, but, you know she shouldn't get any big ideas. Um, and yeah. So at the end, then, you know, exactly that thing happens where he's, he's going to marry Irulon because this makes him the heir to the entire empire. He's marrying the emperor's eldest daughter. Um, and he doesn't have a male heir. So Paul is going to be that heir and he, He's gonna be the new emperor of the entire dang universe. Um and then Jessica, you know, like is I guess wanting to reassure Cheney that like, hey, politics is stupid. Um and and don't worry because Paul just said, like, yeah, I'm gonna marry her, but it's gonna be totally like a political thing. I'm definitely not having kids with her. You are, you are my main squeeze, Chaney. You're what, it, you're what it's about. I'm in love with you, not with her, but she's going to give me an empire and this is going to like fix everything for all of us. Um, so after all of that context, the last line of the book, Jane, uh, Jessica is saying to Chaney, like, look at her standing there. So haughty, so confident, let her console herself with her books and her writing. She will have little else. Um, Weirdly rude. <laughs> for it is, it is we, the ones who are now called concubines, that history will call wives. And that's how the book ends. That's
1: the last line. Of the that's book. the last that's line So weird.
0: Before before it goes into the appendices. That's the last line, and it's it's such a such a weird line to end on. Um,
2: also. Am I remembering incorrectly, or does Irulan, like, quietly murder Chani in the sequel?
0: I do not remember.
2: I feel like I she poisons her or something. Because she's, like, jealous of her relationship with Paul. Maybe I'm remembering that wrong.
0: I, I do not remember that at all. There's There's a few things I remember from the sequels, and that's not one that I remember one way or the other. Mostly what I remember is... Paul's it's either son or grandson who turns into a sandworm and like at several points during the book he decides to you know bring up in conversation by the way I don't have any genitals this is mostly what I remember is this guy turning into a sandworm Sitting around in like a cart because he can't walk anymore, and I, I I picture it as just like a wheelbarrow. So i <laughs> imagine just like a big kind of larva man sitting in a wheelbarrow, yelling, "I have no genitals." That's that's my takeaway from the sequel.
1: Dune is weird. <laughs> yeah, they they shot and they shot the that ending because um, it's. It's in the deleted scenes, and I think it was in the extended edition that came later. Um, I just saw it on YouTube the other day when we were, like, preparing for the podcast. So this, you know, during the climax after, you know, the battle is over and McLaughlin is giving his final fi- final speech, he just suddenly turns around and just pronounces, I will marry Irulan. <laughs> it's like the weirdest, just because they haven't set up why. Right. And then, and then uh, she and, and uh, Jessica, Johnny and Jessica have that conversation, and it's the end of the movie. And it's like, yeah, it's... It's already a weird, big idea that seems even weirder if you try to cram it into the narrative of a movie, I think. Especially if you didn't take the time to set it up.
0: <laughs> and because this movie has a lot more going on with the battles and it has kind of a weirdly little emphasis on the the book's main story about bloodlines and intensive human breeding... Um, that makes it make a little bit more sense in the book. There's some nice like kind of visual knots to it in the movie, but it doesn't really come up as much of a theme. Like you were saying, um, Elle, that there's like a huge pack of like seven bulldogs and um, the Atreides have, have little pugs. And I feel that's definitely like there as a as a visual thing for, you know, the humans being Bred for specific qualities, like dogs are, because they're all mm-hmm. like being like inbred and things. And um, I think everyone on Planet Gedi Prime having red hair is also supposed to be that.
1: Mm-hmm. Like
0: this is this is like a, a specific quality that has been has been bred for in this specific place, at least. Um, but the the yeah the, the movie. Surprisingly, from you know, from the director of Eraserhead, has has so much less of the focus on horrifically artificial aspects of human sexuality and reproduction than you would you would expect to see here, and also surprisingly little of the uh, body horror of finding yourself transforming into a different being than you once knew yourself to be that Paul undergoes
2: right yeah um, One thing that does sort of uh, relate to th- those categories is are the uh, the weird shots of the of the fetus in Jessica yes. Yeah. Um, where you just sort of see her, like you sort of see her, sort of emerge uh, as a fetus, like out of Jessica's guts. Basically, it's a very, it's a very strange shot.
0: Yes, um, it is.
2: <laughs> oh, something uh, that I wanted to mention is another one of the uh, exceedingly rare moments of comedy in the movie that I really love is uh, is paul demonstrating the weirding way and telling the guy to yell at the rock
0: oh yes, yes. yell at and it
2: all all the other fremen just sort of laughing like come on you're gonna yell at the rock and the
1: guy's just like break <laughs> it uh, it works because they have the fremen laugh they're like the, the movie is acknowledging this this is weird and silly
2: yeah also the guy who's trying to break the rock uh, is my favorite modern Fremen. He or uh, minor Fremen, I mean, he just has a—he has a great look. He's got this kind of big beard and a receding hairline and longish hair, and he's very the whole like like as uh, hillbillies thing we were talking about earlier. He very much fits into that.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, he's yeah. charming.
2: Kearney Halleck never does. He ne- he never does music in the movie, which I find very disappointing. Yeah. He sort of right. he brings in an instrument in the beginning sort of represent that he's a musician, but it never comes up beyond that.
0: Right, which is is disappointing. There should definitely be a scene where, you know, they're in like one of the Fremen sieges or something and he's playing this instrument and singing in front of a red curtain. I was going to
1: say he stands in front of a red curtain in a spotlight. Yeah. (laughs) And performs a song. And the words starring Kyle MacLachlan appear.
0: (laughs) Because in every David Lynch project, there's somebody singing in front of a curtain. Now, you know what would have been
2: really amazing uh, is if there was a roadhouse scene in Twin Peaks season three where they were like, ladies and gentlemen, Gurney Halleck and Patrick Stewart came out with a guitar in a still suit. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh,
0: shit.
1: (laughs) So, yeah. uh, Dune was not a hit with critics or audiences, really.
0: <laughs> not a hit. Which is uh,
1: not not surprising when you look at the final product for all of its charms and uh, entertaining qualities. It uh, was not going to be a blockbuster. Certainly not in 1984.
0: Not a crowd pleaser. No. Not a crowd pleaser.
1: Um, and, you know, David Lynch doesn't... He prefers not to talk about Dune. Um, I mean, he prefers not to talk about a lot of things, <laughs> but uh, usually he will tell you about... Thing, certain things about his movies, even if he doesn't like to tell you the meaning. But Dune is one where he kind of just sort of defers all questions. He has said that you know it was his least favorite experience making movies, and uh, in his sort of humble way that he he usually has, he he says you know it's no one's fault but my own. I lost control of it. I uh, that was not the right project for me. And it was the last time that he would ever um, take a project where he didn't have final cut because that was a nightmare for him that you know universal and the dealer rentis company and all these people had demands that you know were out of his hands yeah. um, which you know as as someone who was a was a fine artist and a painter first that makes sense that he was not prepared for that aspect of studio filmmaking for sure um, where someone else is going to come in and do shit that wasn't your idea right um and he did, he did try to, he, he did make a big, he cut it way down. Um, you know, his first script would have been like four hours as written. And then, you know, he had like a three hour cut and they were like, no, it's got to be, it's got to be two hours. Um, and he did, he and he and Rafaela De Laurentiis worked together to cut it down to what it is now, which is like 2.15, I think, something like that. Um, and after it bombed... Uh, they wanted to do an extended cut for TV. Someone at the studio wanted to do that, and Lynch had no interest in doing that at all. Unsurprisingly, he wanted to just move on to the next thing. He did, not to, he did not
0: want to revisit it at all.
1: So there is an extended cut that's like four hours long. They put like, not four, it's like three hours. It's like over three hours long. They put like 50 minutes back in.
0: Yeah, it's it cracks It's, the three it's, it's hour over mark. three, but it, it's, it was, it's not four.
1: If I recall, it was it was premiered as two two-hour events on TV. Like, it was two nights on TV, two hours with commercial each, and they had, like, a mini-series version. And it exists as a DVD, but it's out of print now because it's not, you know... Lynch doesn't have any say over it since he didn't have creative control, but I think with his lack of involvement, they try not to... And it's not like it's ever been a big moneymaker. Even now, I don't think there's a lot of money in selling new versions of Dune. But there was a DVD out there. And we... JoJo's dad has it, so we've seen it. It's been a long time, and I, like I said, I watched some scenes on YouTube when we were getting ready for this to remind myself what all was in there. It was basically a, a lot more narration, which sounds impossible when you say it. But, and it was narration that wasn't Irulan. They got another guy. In fact, if you look on the Wikipedia, it says unknown. Like, no one remembers who they got to do the narration. Weird. <laughs> Explaining further things, like every time a character pops up, they the, a narrator tells you what their relationship is to the characters in the scene, and there's you know, lots of little, little moments that kind of flesh out the political stuff and things like that. Um, Lynch, it's, it's, it's credited to Alan Smithy. It's an Alan Smithy joint, which, if you know about that, it's uh, when, when a director wants their name removed from a movie because they're unhappy with the finished product. It just, it's kind of a, a Hollywood thing to just put directed by Alan Smithy on there, which is what that extended cut says. Uh, and this. Lynch's screenwriting credit is replaced with a name he came up with, which was Judas Booth, which is a really great pseudonym.
2: It really is.
1: Because he felt it was, you know, something to do with the betrayal involved in the process. <laughs> Judas and Booth.
0: Judas Booth.
1: Um. Yeah. And if I recall, it also doesn't work, but in a kind of a different way. It's. <laughs> Where this movie rushes through things to a point that's to its detriment, then obviously the three-hour version has the opposite problem, because Dune is really hard to turn into a movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's a movie that would require being really unfaithful to the text in a way that uh, sci-fi fans would would probably like, you know, come after you for, especially in today's <laughs> uh, climate of movie watching. Well, I've always thought it'd be interesting. <laughs> they
0: tried and failed. They tried,
1: they tried and died. They tried and then made blue velvet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I th- I've always thought it'd be interesting to do a version that like starts with Paul and Jessica crashing in the desert, and everything before that is like flashbacks, or you know, is told in different ways. But or, the plot or, of the mo- the right. plot of the story itself is everything in the desert.
0: Yeah, yeah. or or starts after Paul has already become the leader Muad'Dib and then the story is told in a nonlinear way which totally makes yeah. sense because it's about you know people being able to look backwards and forwards throughout time yeah. that could be I, that could be a cool structure I think
1: that's that's the key that from what I've seen everyone is missing when they talk about turning Dune into a movie is it would have to be nonlinear to be in any way entertaining and also have the important stuff from the book
0: to be more, be, 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 less faithful to the events of the plot as they go and maybe more faithful to the core meanings and the themes. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, well, it is, uh, interesting in that regard that, um, you know, Villeneuve, who's making the new Dune, uh, made the arrival. Right. Uh, which is also in t- which is also not only a movie that's told non-linearly but is about that.
1: Right, right. That's true.
2: Uh so who um. knows, it might work. I'm really interested to see uh both how the story is adapted for the new movie and also how it deals with the the um more problematic aspects that we were
1: Yes. Talking about
0: earlier. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, there was a miniseries in like two. Was two thousand? The sci-fi miniseries. Two thousand
0: or two thousand one. Uh, which I, which I quite like a lot.
1: Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's got it gets to sprawl out, and they do make an effort to give like Erolon more to do in the story itself, and she and Paul have like a relationship where they kind of hang out and talk about how weird their royal parents are and stuff like that. That's yeah, very charming. And, and, and sort then, of... and then
0: she's got this whole thing going on where she decides since no one will tell her what's going on that she's going to go just kind of do spy shit and she goes and figures out what everybody's plots are just on her own
1: yeah so i recommend that too it's um still still plagued by how hard it is to turn this story into <laughs> anything visual um, um but but it it has more time to tell the story in a way that makes sense and you can get a foothold on i've been
2: curious recently to watch that i never have um every time I see like pictures from it, I'm always deeply disappointed by the costuming.
1: Yeah, I mean it's definitely plagued by, you know, this was made for the sci fi channel in the year two thousand. It mm-hmm. doesn't uh it doesn't look like it cost any more than that would
0: imply. <laughs> right. It's 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 got some nice hats. The the mm-hmm. cost the costumes aren't, you know, to like the wonderful level that, that this is, um, but it's It's got some nice hats. It's got some nice, you know, like character motifs and things going on. Like an effort was made uh... on a budget. One thing I really like about it is um, it, it kind of uses its low, low budget to its advantage a little bit in that it's very stagey. Like it's, it's kind of obvious that it's filmed on a on a stage, mm-hmm. and it's got these really dramatic, like colored spotlight lighting throughout the whole thing to make you to sort of lean into that and make you sort of feel like you're watching a play. Interesting. Instead of instead of trying to convince you um, of the fidelity of the environments, it's just like, well, this is this is a drama that you are watching.
1: Thank you for joining us for this adventure through David Lynch's Dune. Um, If you want to find any of us online, uh, we're all on Twitter pretty frequently. I am at Andrew Isla, and uh, the thing I am busying myself with these days and for the rest of the year probably is uh, my new animated video series, uh, Obsidian National Forest. It's a kind of spooky comedy thing about... Owls in a creepy forest that just launched. You know, uh, between the last episode and this one. So if you want to check that out, it's got a Twitter uh, presence at Obsidian NF, and it just has a website that I just launched uh, that has everything all in one place: uh, ObsidianNationalForest.com. dot
0: And, and uh, oh, go on.
1: Oh, I was just gonna gonna
2: uh, vouch for Obsidian National Forest as something that anyone listening to this should check out if
1: they haven't because it's great. Oh, well, thank you. Yay. I'm having a lot of fun working on the next episodes right now. Excellent.
2: Um, You can find me on uh, Twitter at another L. uh, And you can also find me at another L on uh, Instagram if you want to see mostly pictures of my cats and sometimes puppets. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it.
0: All right, and uh, you can find this desert creature at jojoseams.com, on Twitter, at Jojo Seems, on Instagram, at JojoSeams, on Tumblr, at Jojo Seams, J-O-J-O-S-E-A-M-E-S. Uh, and uh, I'm also involved with Obsidian National Forest, making my acting debut, of all things. <laughs> Please read my stupid comic book about supernatural dirtbaggery, makeshiftmancomic.com. The current,
1: the current issue is so good, and when it's all done, I think it will be one, one very beautiful little book.
0: Well, thank you. Oh, and... Uh, Andrew and I can be supported jointly. Yes, Patreon dot com slash JoJoSeems.
1: Because because it's a Patreon for two people who have separate individual projects, you get all kinds of stuff. You get a yeah. lot. You get a lot of stuff on our Patreon. We 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 update like four or five times a day sometimes <laughs> because we're both doing things.
2: Yeah, you guys have a really good Patreon. Well, thank
1: you. Um,
2: I'm no good at Patreon, uh, but if you want to support me because you think I deserve su- support and not because you're invested in a lot of rewards.
0: You do uh, su- deserve support. You do.
1: Uh, because the thing is like most of your work is podcasts and, you know, written work online. And it's much harder to like share pieces of that the way you can, when you're doing art and video. Yeah, for sure. But that's yeah. all it is. is it's, it's so easy to be like, here's a picture of this thing I'm doing. Boom. And you can't really do that with the stuff you do. <laughs> um, but people can support me at patreon.com slash
2: uh, podcast. Yeah. Patreon.com slash into podcast. Yeah. Um, Yes. It's always such a pleasure, uh, talking to you two about whatever we're talking about.
1: I feel quite the same. You know, it's a show that exists purely because the three of us kept saying we wanted to hang out and talk about movies. So I'm like, well, I guess we could record it while we do that. It'd be a good excuse to do it. Yes. Hell yeah. So thank you everyone who enjoys listening to it when we do that. Um, And uh, we will... You look like you're going to say something.
0: I was going to say, they can join us next time when we talk about Wings of Desire. Or in
1: German, Das Himmel über Berlin. Yes.
0: That. That
1: thing. Uh, Yes, we will be talking about uh, Wim Wenders' Wings of Desire on the next episode. We are trying to make these a little closer together, um, which hasn't happened in these first three episodes because... We all keep being busy at various times. Um, I don't know that that's going to get much better very soon.
2: I'm still or... rooting for it, too, though.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing is, in July, um, Jojo and I are going to Europe. So oh, well. <laughs> that'll be like three weeks where we're not doing any podcasting. So there'll be another month break there, although huh. we could maybe do a couple episodes before then to kind of build up to it. Yes. So in the meantime, walk without rhythm and you won't attract the world. But if you walk without rhythm, you'll never learn walk without rhythm. You can go with this, or you can go track the you walk without rhythm, it is like a track the world. If you walk without
2: rhythm, you never learn. it podcast.